Hey there, podcast listeners. Welcome to Engendered, the show that features stories that explore the systems, practices, and policies that enable gender-based violence and oppression and the solutions to end it. We use gender as a lens to understand power and oppression, teach feminism, and decolonize hearts and minds one story at a time. Engendered is sponsored by Can Do It, spelled K-A-N-D-U-I-T, and I'm your host, Terry Yuan. Welcome, Michael, to episode 66 and the next episode of Reflections, where we talk about a series of episodes on the topic of child sexual abuse. Thank you again for having me, Terry. Um, Child abuse is one of those episodes that um, I was a little bit worried about since I don't particularly love talking about the sexual abuse, but it's a challenge that I feel like I, I, I had to take. Thank you. Well, I think that's probably a sentiment that a lot of people who are listening also share. And to recap, we're going to be talking about episode 60 with Gary Greenberg, episode 61, a survivor story with Kathy Picard, episode 62, another survivor story with Hunter Maxwell, and finally episode 63 with James Powell, a social worker. So starting with Gary Greenberg, he is an activist and a child sexual abuse survivor. He was pivotal in getting the Child Victims Act passed in New York State this year. And our topic there was about activism and accountability. Obviously, we started with a brief history of his own experience. Was there anything about listening to that, as you were saying earlier, that made you not want to listen? Well, just the thought of the danger happening in a hospital, which is a place where you should feel safe. You're there to get better. And then for a danger like this to appear out of nowhere. I know that sexual abuse can happen anywhere. In fact, I believe most of it happens at home from uh, a family member. But for it to possibly happen on a person that you're supposed to trust, like a doctor or medical professional, I I understand that he was an orderly, but um, that... That in particular just makes me fear for the people that I know and even myself. To think that if I had a child, I would have to worry about that child in, uh, in, in, in a place where I should feel safe is scary. Was there any point where you felt like, obviously, you're part of our podcast team and you were going to listen to the episode as part of preparing for this conversation, but you, if you had the choice and someone said, hey, listen to this episode, would you have voluntarily stopped? I think it's important for me to understand more about sexual child, child sexual abuse because it, it, it's, it's more about informing myself. Even though I do feel uncomfortable and it's not something that I would outright go listen to for myself if I had the choice, I wouldn't stop now because I want to make sure that I understand what the symptoms possibly were. And, and I know that um, Gary mentioned some of the symptoms and how fast they happened. He mentioned that it was like six weeks afterward. And so that's something that is new information that I believe is helpful. You were referencing the trauma symptoms he experienced? Right. He said that the trauma symptoms that he experienced happened six weeks, or they were noticed six weeks afterward by his mother when he was very quiet And he changed, his whole attitude changed, and he finally told his mother, even though he was terrified of this man possibly killing him. 
and hurting his sister because hurting, that was another threat that he made. That's right. Or just and this is just one of the things that 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 he's afraid of. Also, there was that shame that I'm sure he felt because maybe he felt guilty for what happened, which is a common symptom. Was it surprising for you to hear that so many large institutions, such as the Catholic Church and the Boy Scouts and insurance companies were against having this law passed that basically would extend the statute of limitations for both civil and criminal cases beyond what it was already. Right. That was later on in the episode. And I was very surprised to, I mean, I I, I understood that um, when it comes to big corporations um, lobbying for uh, certain interests, um, they had a big influence in, in, um, in society because it, it influences lawmakers. Like, let's say um, the NRA, which uh, has, has, uh, gives money to a lot of these politicians, and that affects a lot of people's lives. People are dying because of that. But I never really thought that this would be... Well, I, I mean, now that I hear it, it makes sense. But to think that it would happen when it comes to child abuse is surprising to me. It- well, the reason that these institutions have historically, for decades, been against this law and this bill is because so many members of these institutions, priests and Boy Scout leaders, have been accused and found guilty of molesting children under their care. And so they, their liability, if it was fully taken into account with all of the people who have been victimized using the legal system that's civil or criminal to pursue justice, potentially, yes, these institutions might become bankrupt. Right. Which is another reason why we should all go out there to vote. Everybody who's listening to this, I I hope that you take this into consideration because one of the things that he mentioned was that if they didn't if they didn't flip the Senate, there would not have been a chance for this to happen because people aren't aware of of these abuses and they're not going out there to vote on the issues. It seems like a lot of this is being ignored. Eventually, he said that the Republicans that, that originally said no to it said yes when there was enough people in the, in the Senate to get this uh, law passed. And that speaks to the commitment that Gary made as an individual activist and as a survivor that he's now retired. I don't know exactly how old he is, but it's been many decades since he personally experienced the abuse by this orderly. And he committed basically all of his retirement which was, I, I don't remember the exact number, was it like 345000 something like that? Do you remember? Uh, 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 I'm sorry, in terms of money? Yeah. Yeah, uh, it was a, a couple of hundred thousand. I'm, I'm sure, not sure about the number exactly. I think it was something like that, 340000 345000 Right. of his retirement account that he decided to put into this political action committee to flip the New York State Senate, as you said, and without his financial commitment, this wouldn't have happened. And so I think that speaks a lot to the people who have the power to make that change for them to do that. Because Well, also it speaks to his, originally I was going to say it speaks a lot to the suffering that people experience, that they're willing to forego future stability and comfort 
in order to achieve some sort of accountability for our pains and suffering in the past. I mean, there's also the cost of this not happening, because if it doesn't happen, then you, he may have on his conscience that many other people are going to be suffering because the injustice will continue. That's true. So I think it's, it's very brave. I mean, one, one can say it brave and admirable, but for him, I know he, he has no other choice. He, he had to do this. Right. But other people, like, I can understand also other survivors who turn away and don't want to confront the pain that they carry with them. And they choose to live lives where they're not engaged in this level of visibility um, and advocacy. He mentioned that there were at least 125 other people who uh, brought claims to this orderly. Now, not everybody wanted to come forward or not remain anonymous. And a lot of it is probably because they were ashamed in themselves of what happened, which is one of the things that hopefully in the future, people are less ashamed and to talk about this. And if me, if I was already hesitant to just talk about child abuse, I can only imagine to somebody who actually had to go through this, like what, what level of shame must they feel? So every time I, so when I, when I think about it, that, that, I, that I did listen to it and I am um, actively talking about it, it reaffirms it because it's just hopefully it's helpful. Yeah, I think we're creating a space for survivors of child sexual abuse to come forward and feel validated, not blamed, as you said, to hopefully shed some of the shame that society has imposed on them and, or they have possibly imposed on themselves. I mean, yeah, I would say it's both. I mean, even, even, when, um, even when Gary was telling his story, he mentioned that um, he kicked the orderly and he fought against it and he knew that this was wrong and he didn't want to do it. But he, he at one point, the orderly threatened him. He was going to throw him off the, 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 the rooftop or over the elevator shaft. And this, was, this was, must have been so traumatic on so many levels for him. So there is that shame, that shame of like him not wanting. It's, it's not just the threats. It would, I would say it's also the shame of this happening. Like they feel guilty. Right, that their that protest weren't enough, potentially. Right. Maybe they think they could have done something else, but at that point, they, they, that's, it's awful for people to blame themselves. And for... it gets back to the point of it's about power, and it's a power imbalance. And so whenever you're in a situation where someone is overpowering you through force or coercion or any other form of intimidation, etc., you can't blame yourself for being unable to resist. Right. Especially in that situation where he's young. I, I believe he said that he was um, around nine years of age. Um, not sure, but either way, he's younger. He doesn't have the power. And again, the parents trusted this orderly to, to, I think, give him a tour around the place. And it's just this trust that's broken. And I think that's another common theme that goes throughout this, um, all three episodes. Um of this of this topic there's the 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 trust that's broken so getting to the law that was passed gary was also part of another law um erin's law that was passed 
recently as well in 2019. And this bill actually requires sex abuse prevention education in schools. Mm-hmm. And so this law, this bill rather, was passed in both houses. And it was just last week that Governor Cuomo signed the bill after two months of a delay and sitting on it. Um, And what was interesting about it is that all of the activists who were working on this bill, Gary included, and of course, Aaron Marin, they were not part of a public signing event. And it's a shame because it's such a celebratory victory that we really, none of us really know why Governor Cuomo signed the law without really letting anybody know. We just found out at night and weren't able to give it the recognition. Obviously, the accompanied media attention that it needed. Mm-hmm. So anyway, that that at least has been passed as well. And hopefully we'll see the implementation of that bill in schools making a difference as they start gathering data and implementing it. And hopefully they'll have uniform, standardized, trauma-informed trainers um, who can be the ones facilitating those conversations with children at all ages. I hope so, because education, as we've spoken before, is so important to preventing uh, child abuse and just any abuse in general. I I don't know why Cuomo sat on it. In a lot of ways, I, I do feel like it's protecting the abuser. Which is a great segue into our next episode, 61, with survivor Kathy Picard. And she wrote a book called Life with My Idiot Family, A True Story of Survival, Courage, and Justice Over Childhood Sexual Abuse. Uh, She co-wrote that with her husband. And I read the book uh, and had the pleasure of speaking with Kathy, who was a very pivotal member of getting similar laws passed extending the statute of limitations in the state of Massachusetts. So for decades, she worked on extending it on the civil and on the criminal fronts. And with Kathy, it was a family member who violated her trust, someone whom she thought was her biological father, who later turned out to be her stepfather, not biologically related. Right. Which, again, I believe that this is something that is is more common than a random stranger like the first story. And this is just that I I know people myself who have gone through something like this. And um, it's not always the stepfather. A lot of the times it's the biological father themselves. So it's one of those things that we have to pay attention to. And um, it's important to talk about. So you say pay attention. And yet part of the challenge that Kathy had throughout her childhood is that this, these incidents happened in front of other people and she did disclose and they not only disbelieved her or refused to believe her, but they would deny it and they would punish her for speaking out. Not only that, but even therapists. Uh, she mentioned that there was a therapist that she had who told her to just forget about it, right? Which is, I believe in the, the next episode or two episodes later, uh, that's something that was referred to as a re-traumatization. So basically another, adding another layer of trauma to the original trauma that happened. And that's why it's important for us to talk about it. Well, speaks to also the need for mental health professionals to be properly trained and their implicit biases and gender biases around these issues to be addressed so that they could provide the proper support for survivors of all kinds. Uh, And with child sexual abuse survivors, like you said, with Kathy, one of those therapists said, put it in the past, which is 
a very traditional piece of advice that many, many groups of people give under many kinds of conditions, trying to sort of reset people's minds to think positively and not kind of quote unquote dwell on the negative as if it's our fault for dwelling when in fact it's really trauma that's been unresolved that's not been properly healed. Not only that, but when trauma is suppressed, it comes out in different ways. So a lot of people, this has a a huge effect on a person's life and it's for the rest of their life. If they're not dealing with it, if they're not talking this through and trying to do something about it actively, it's going to manifest itself in many, many ways. And as far as... So it basically it affects like you create these survival mechanisms to, to try to, to survive a situation like that. And you continuously use these same survival mechanisms throughout your adulthood. This is something that I've seen in a personal level with other people. And it doesn't just affect the person's life in the future. It affects the lives of everyone around that person and, and their family and their friends and their just ability to move forward. It's 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 something that. If we don't pay attention to it, it just gets worse. I agree. With Kathy, she was actually, I think, I don't know if I would call it fortunate, but she was skilled enough to self-assess that how she was feeling in response to this therapist's recommendation that she just put it behind her was enough for her to decide, I'm not going to continue with this therapist anymore. She's not serving me, Um, which is different than people who are actually being challenged by their therapist in a appropriate way to actually confront things that they bring up in session so that they could learn the tools to actually adapt to them and manage those feelings as they arise. But Gary spoke about this in his interview with me about how it affected his relationships. Oh, I see. Right. She mentioned that um, she had trust issues growing up and uh, they're just and other symptoms of PTSD. Right. So a lot of times that these are things that just don't go away without you addressing them. And for her, especially, it must have been difficult. She doesn't even remember if it started between seven or eight or nine years old. But this abuse happened all the way until she was 17, until she she was able to get out. And it wasn't just the abuse. It was the the reinforcement of the abuse by her mother. Uh, She mentioned that maybe she felt like her mother was envious. There wasn't a relationship that was negative between her and her mother. And it must have been so difficult for her growing up in that household. So when she writes a book about my idiot family, it's not just this this abuser. It's the people that reinforce it. And also the fact that she was the step uh, stepdaughter of uh, in the family and her siblings were her step-siblings. They, they protected the father. Yeah, and I think that dynamic of her half-sister's who were the biological daughters of her stepfather, the person who abused her sexually, they felt jealous as well of the attention that she was getting. Right. Even though she was, the attention was negative attention and creating that dynamic where there's this competition for attention and the girls and the mother in the home were envious, I guess, like you said, of having that attention rather than recognizing that that attention is not worthy of desiring absolutely yeah. and that they should actually take action to help protect Kathy is a part of women's role in upholding patriarchy and it's it's difficult also because 
because people being multifaceted, seeing Kathy's story through her point of view is very important for us to understand the effects uh, that this has. I'm sure that the mother and the daughters have also suffered through their trauma. And they, yes, they were there and they were reinforcing the trauma, but they themselves were victims. Well, the problem is if someone doesn't recognize themselves to be victims or to be having been victimized by other people, of which we all are under patriarchy, all genders, all people, we're all put into this box that circumscribes our behavior and what we're allowed to think and feel and how we're allowed to dress and behave. And, uh, And so those rewards and punishments that we get, because these dynamics are also replicated in the home, if they're left unquestioned, as most worldview assumptions are, then it just reinforces the larger systemic dynamic that patriarchy creates, which is competition between women for men for male attention. Right. Right. So and it just reinforces the cycle and it keeps continuing. That makes sense. I, I say this though, just because one of the things that you discussed with Gary was accountability, right? So if we're going to hold people accountable for these actions what is the level of accountability that we're going to hold, let's say, person like the mother as opposed to the abuser themselves, the main abuser, right? And, and how to address that, right? They're not easy questions. Well, one of the hashtags that we have for our Survivor Series is upstander tips. You know, how can people who are not directly being impacted by gender-based violence as a victim, how can they as bystanders, either family members, spouses, relatives, co-workers, friends, etc., how can they support the journey towards healing of survivors and also contribute towards accountability? And those are some of the things that we discussed in past episodes regarding the concept of restorative justice, that collectively, yes, we should have a system of accountability that doesn't rely on the systems that already exist. As a community, we all need to be able to also want to pursue accountability because, as you said, if people aren't going to the police and reporting crimes, these perpetrators are going to be out there committing these crimes against other people. And it's kind of like it infects other people. So the the pain, the suffering, the mental anguish of being in an emotionally abusive, physically or coercively controlling relationship has a toll on you, not just emotionally and psychologically, but physically. Absolutely. And so if we are to let people get away with their behaviors, it becomes something that infects all of society. Absolutely. And, and through different uh, levels, too. I know of a person that once told me that she was going through an abusive relationship, but she was afraid to speak out about it. And she she could have done something at one point to to, to have this person be held accountable, but she didn't. She stayed quiet and she saw when she was out of that relationship, she saw that the pattern continued with this man's other relationships and eventually there was a death of a child that resulted from that so then there became that guilt of like if I should have said something if I should have done something that child may have still been alive which it's tough to hear but but it's it's one of those realities 
I, I wouldn't blame her for for not speaking out it, because everybody has their own journey. But it, it's something that does affect society, both, like you said, uh, emotionally, but also physically. And uh, there are real life consequences. The systemic pattern of families, communities sort of covering each other up shows up in episode 62 in our interview with Hunter Maxwell. I actually met him at a professional networking event through his nonprofit that he's starting. And it came up that he was a survivor of childhood abuse, that his mother was a survivor of domestic violence. So I invited him to be a guest on my show. And to be fully transparent, the conversation was very organic. And as we started talking, it became very apparent very quickly that there was this community that he's been exposed to growing up of basically everyone having been a victim of childhood sexual abuse. It's generational pattern and a generational pattern of silencing themselves, which he said was cultural, but I feel like it's just more about humanity. It's not cultural to the South or to those states that he grew up in. I think it's cultural for American society, for all societies that we want to believe that the people in our lives with power that we elevate who might be, you know, preaching on Sundays to a whole congregation are not going to be guilty of exploiting their power in other situations. And yet they are, especially with, in in Hunter's example, multiple exploitations are happening in the home. Right. He mentioned um, how his mother had abusive boyfriends over and over again. And some of these abusers he had to interact with and some of those abusers abused him. So it, it it seems like it is a pattern and it hasn't stopped. So I'm glad, though, that Hunter was able to speak out about it to you and uh, to share it to our audience as well. What were your thoughts when Hunter revealed for the first time, he actually said, about his experience hitchhiking and being also sexually violated and a victim of trafficking after the hitchhike by the, I guess, his abductor in a way. Right. One of the things that Hunter mentioned was that he, he displayed this level of masculinity of like, I'm not afraid to fight. I, I'll fight if I have to. A lot of it is just, I, I feel, our defenses uh, because of what happened to him. I mean, it's something that has to be very traumatic. But he, in order for him to survive, he had to be this tough guy kind of persona. And I think it is harmful because it's it's just something that continues to affect him, I believe, in a negative way. Well, it prevents him from being able to access his genuine feelings about these experiences and about his own desires. So he is questioning his sexuality, his sexual orientation, his kinds of genders that he's attracted to. Right. It must be very confusing to 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 have to deal with that especially if it happened to him at a young age where he's getting his uh feelings of abuse confused with his own desires and it's it has to be in many ways i believe re-traumatizing him when he experiences other things that are similar yeah i mean I, i i was disappointed to hear that he expressed that his mother would be someone who would never want to go to therapy 
and I'm not advocating necessarily that everybody, I mean, I think everyone can benefit from therapy just because therapy or coaching or any kind of experience where you're holding a mirror and identifying, engaging in self-analysis and identifying patterns in your life, um, especially patterns that lead to negative outcomes and ways in which you can potentially prevent those patterns from reoccurring. That's the whole point of therapy, to have this kind of greater level of consciousness, seeing the big picture, so to speak. And being aware of what your own biases and, and and how your own trauma has affected you and continues to affect you. So if you, if you have this, this sort of mirror to yourself, it, it hopefully will make your reactions to things, to just other experiences, um, have a different light to it and be able to address your issues. I totally agree with all of that. I think also it would be great for someone like Hunter's mother and someone with that kind of personality who's just totally against therapy, but who has been victimized on so many levels, you know, by her father, by her um, Hunter's father, who's in prison, who's been incarcerated for his violence, and all of her ex-boyfriends, and and to see that so many women in her family have also been victimized and aren't getting the accountability that they should be getting, that there's this level of resignation, like, oh, my voice doesn't matter. This is just how things are, is how he described it. I would paraphrase. And and to, to be able to say this is how things are, that I'm just going to be a victim and not have a say in protecting myself and that society is not going to prioritize my safety, I think is a very sad place to be. Yeah, it, I would say, I would even go so far as to say there's like a sense of normalization where he he mentioned that when he was younger he would see uh some of his uh, siblings hear some strange noises at night or they would walk out in the morning naked out of rooms and and it was it seemed to be something that was normalized instead of something that needed urgent attention because that that's really what should have been happening you're referring to his female cousin who was molested by her father his uncle Hunter's uncle, and apparently the female cousin, we, I, he didn't know the background, but um, she ended up being a witness against her father in a criminal case right. based on what he al- allegedly did to her. Right. And yet he, as Hunter said, I think he only got parole. He didn't get any prison time. Right. I don't remember. Yeah. And so to, to be able to go through a whole trial, to have all these witnesses to have a pattern that's being shared and and not get accountability can certainly make you feel like, what's the point? Right. Like you feel so powerless because not only did they have to go through a trauma the first time, but I'm sure going to court is yet another trauma that you're going to have to relive the same experience over again. And for it not to happen, it kind of reminds me of the Kavanaugh hearings, you know, where, where this woman had to, relive the trauma and then go through the trauma of her not being believed and no accountability happening to. Well, to be fair, Dr. Ford was believed by many survivors. Um, It was her detractors who didn't believe her. Right. Um, Those of us who are survivors and who work in the space of gender-based violence, preventing it and advocating for survivors of gender-based violence, we all recognize her symptoms to be genuine and her words to be sincere and and i i feel they were sincere also 
But I would say when it comes to accountability, you know, we still have a, a new Supreme Court judge who is an abuser. When it comes to accountability, it's some people, I guess it depends if you, if you, money helps and, and power. So I'm assuming that that's one of the reasons why there was no accountability in that situation. And in some, in many situations, there is no accountability. Well, you know, it's good that you talked about accountability because this goes back to our episode with Gary and the Child Victims Act. So since August 14th, survivors of child sexual abuse have been able to start claiming, uh, making claims um, in the state and reporting. And apparently 97% of the 500 lawsuits that were filed since then have identified large institutions such as the Catholic Church or the Boy Scouts as the uh, entities responsible for their abuse rather than individuals such as family members or, you know, other people. Um, And so the fact that fewer than 20 cases have named an individual or multiple individuals makes it hard for those people to get accountability because the lawyers who are working on these cases generally work on contingency. So they don't get paid up front and they get paid when they get the settlement. And they're less likely, as Gary said, to pursue individual case claims in civil lawsuits because they're these people might not be rich. They may not have any money to give them. And so if they pursue only the cases where the church or the Boy Scouts or large entities are responsible for childhood sexual abuse, then they're more likely to get a payout. Because as we know, the Catholic Church has been paying out a lot of settlements on these issues. Um, And so that leaves out a lot of people who are being harmed potentially through incest, like the Kathy Picards of the world right. and Hunter and his mother and all those individuals who may be too poor to pay and therefore be ineligible to even get an attorney to want to work on their behalf. Right. So it seems like money is something that is tied to justice somehow. Like even with Gary, if Gary didn't have those 300 something thousand dollars to, to, to change this law, it wouldn't have even happened in the first place. I'm assuming that. Gary was in a position to do this, but so many people, so many other victims have gone through this and and there's nothing, well, it's limited on what it is that they can do. So that's why it's important for us to put it out there and educate themselves. Now, the other thing that that, that was mentioned through Gary when um, I guess we're talking about accountability is how Gary felt that a criminal, that a pedophile like his abuser deserves punishment that's so harsh that it would never be able, he would never be able to leave. Which, when I was thinking about that, I kind of thought, I kind of thought of the other episode that we were talking about um, when it comes to the criminal justice system and how we look at the criminal justice system as a vindicative kind of thing, as a like vindictive kind of system as opposed to rehabilitation. But that's also a very difficult question because how do we, how do we help people? like that? How do we help abusers that may potentially be in a point where there may not be recovery? So I'm not sure. Well, I think you're talking about the Richie Rosada episode. Right, Richie Rosada episode. And, And so the question isn't how do we help abusers? The question is how do we identify who can be helped? Right. For me, that's the question. I think Richie might say everybody can be helped. 
And so it's not about identifying who can be helped, but what's the proper course response, of action? Yeah, or course of action for each individual based on where they are. And for Richie, he uses, which we try to do again with this podcast as well, he teaches feminism and creates consciousness raising opportunities in his conversations and his workshops with inmates in prison. Right. And he's finding success in that because when he starts opening people's eyes to the ways in which they were victimized by patriarchy and told and socialized to behave in certain ways, like using violence as a conflict resolution tool or using domination as a way to build relationships and connection mm. or intimidation or whatever it is, right? right? That those are all ways in which all of us have been tricked. And, and when people start realizing it, then they shift. But the messenger has to be right. The timing has to be right. And so many different things have to be right for that to happen. So obviously, prevention is key in terms of being able to raise healthy children rather than cure unhealthy adults. Right. And I think for Gary, his point is there are certain kinds of crimes that people commit such as childhood sexual abuse, and for me, coercive control, that are so fundamental to someone's mindset that it's going to take a lot to shift them because they are in a space where domination, violence, power and control is what they know and what they use. So you would say that Gary would say that certain people are too far gone to help? Yeah, I believe he did say that in our episode, and those include child sexual abusers. If they can do that to a child, they're not going to be redeemed. And as he said, if you're in jail, of course you're not going to be raping children. But as people might be child sexual abusers because they were raped themselves as children, right? You know, or whatever. Who knows what the reasons are? I don't know the research behind it, but they're certainly not getting mental health treatment in jail sufficient to address the reasons behind these adaptive mechanisms that they've acquired right. right through their trauma. And so if you let them out, as Gary said, they're likely to reoffend because they haven't gotten the proper treatment. And they themselves also, even if they were to get the right treatment, they still need to be in a space of openness to receive it and hear the messages. And if you, as someone who is not a child sexual abuse victim, have a hard time listening to these episodes, how can people who are experiencing that, who've adapted ways to sort of live beyond their trauma, who have shut it out of their lives and out of their psyches, how can they reaccess it in a way that's safe when most people that I know, other than some of obviously the ones that we've interviewed on the show, mm -hmm. most mental health professionals aren't trauma informed in their training. They still subscribe to myths of domestic violence and gender violence. And so there's just not enough of a supply of qualified individuals to be able to even address this issue on a systemic level. Right. And so that's how things are right now. I would hope, though, that one day maybe things would change. Maybe maybe society would hopefully get to a point where we can have the resources to assist. The, and then I'm not saying to free them and, and integrate them back into society immediately, but maybe there are things that maybe society one day will have the ability to do. I, I say this just because, you know, how we talk about how people are multifaceted and that there, there are gray areas. A person is not bad 
if they do one bad thing, they're, they're, yes, of course, you can judge them for the, the crime that they committed, but they, they may have other things that are of value. Well, I think that there are, that's true for the most part, for most people, but there are a subset of people in this world who relish on cruelty, being cruel towards other people, cruel, cruel towards animals, cruel toward the earth and planet. And those people, there is such a thing as evil. And I've certainly seen it in my life with my own abuser, which continues to this day. And many other survivors that I know, including most of the ones who've come on this show to share their story, they all struggle with that same um, tension as well. The, the tension between where their own perpetrators and abusers are in that spectrum. Because certainly in the acts that they are receiving from these abusers in their lives, it feels like cruelty is something that they revel in and, and power and control is something that they're not going to give up. I, I understand. I guess more. I, I was bringing more of a philosophical kind of thing where, where it's like, does the crime that they commit, does that deserve an infinite amount of punishment or it's kind of like like the death penalty make things right how far do we go to say that the crime has been paid for or not paid for right it's also it's not just about redemption i think when you separate someone as richie rosita would say and and isolate them from society to keep society safe the right. community safe you're doing so as a preemptive move so that they can they can be stopped from doing more harm right in society and so there's it's not just about measuring whether that one person or 10 people that they've harmed can get the peace or healing that they need from seeing them being put in jail or incarcerated or whatever it is you know that the punishment is that they get it's also about keeping society safe so that an infinite number of people, well, not infinite because they're not going to live forever, but a large number of people in theory will not be harmed by these individuals. Which makes sense. And it also serves as a disincentive for others because if you see that they're going to care about these crimes, that there's collectively, as a society, we've defined certain crimes to be worthy of punishing or holding to account, however that is defined, then it's less likely that other people are going to want to engage in those crimes. Well, that would make logical sense. It, yeah, that makes sense. If we're holding certain crimes accountable, yeah. So final episode, since we were, ta- we were talking about healing, episode 63, James Powell is a clinical social worker, and she talks about social work as a therapeutic model in healing trauma. And I love the way that she calls herself healer is my vocation and ther- psychotherapist is my profession. Right. Yeah, she also, I like also that she says that she calls her clients clients and not patients, right? Because of the implication of that something is wrong with them if you call them patients, like they are ill. And very, overall, very positive. I would love to have her as a therapist. So did you feel that her explanation of how social work differs from other forms of psychotherapy, like working with a psychologist or a mental health professional? Oh, when she was talking about therapy versus coaching? Right. But social work in particular. Right. Well, social work in particular, yeah. So yeah, so she recognizes how systems 
work together and affect the individual. It's, it's important for a therapist to be informed and be able to pass that knowledge to their clients. You, well, to not just be informed, but trained, you mean? Yeah, right. To be informed, trained, and uh, to be able to deal with a lot of these issues that are affected by masculinity, which is one of the things that she incorporates into her sessions with males, especially, which she has a lot of, which she mentioned. Well, just to sort of recap what she said, which is that social work is a, is a modality that is has a vision a larger vision of achieving social justice. And so social justice includes values such as equality and, of course, fullness, the full sort of individual being able to actuate his or her or their own potential in life and how systems that we define, cultural systems, social systems that create identity such as gender or race or physical ability or ethnicity, all of these social constructs in some way or another, I'm paraphrasing, categorize certain people as better and others as less than. And so when we operate and live within a society that has these definitions, we have to navigate through a childhood and an adulthood where we are addressing our self-identity in the context of how society is also recognizing us. And so these might lead to certain behaviors that others will impose on us. So someone who is abusive as a perpetrator in a domestic violence um, relationship or in a rape and sexual assault relationship, that person, you can't separate that person's actions from having grown up in rape culture, in other words. Right. And so... Having that discussion is something that a social worker would have, that there's a systemic system that's put in place that has an effect on the behaviors of both the perpetrator and the victim themselves. Yes. And so it's not just the individual's responsibility to make change, that the change ultimately also needs to include systemic change for all of us collectively as members of our community. We also need to shift how we interact with one another, how we support the survivors, how we, how we define mental illness and injury, and how we respond to them. Right. She mentioned uh, about how we should be careful on different ways that we phrase certain questions when we're replying to the victim, that we don't place the responsibility of the victim on, on themselves. So like, if a person has been abused, instead of saying, well, what could you have done different so the, the abuse doesn't happen again, you should be putting the blame on the abuser who originally perpetrated the crime, right? And, 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 and that's, that's what we should be paying attention to, right? Systems, ways to, to, to change that. And the mindset that the, the, the victim might have um, around their own part in perpetuating that mindset as well. Right. Like she mentioned about the alcohol drinking, right, where uh, it's OK for a man to be tipsy. She mentioned that that women who are tipsy are seen as vulnerable and that imbalance of power is something that's reinforced by men because men want that imbalance and feel like that's the way that they should be able to handle a, a situation to facilitate, I guess, consent. Not that you're supposed to facilitate consent. That's how they justify the abuse. 
Well, getting back to the, the topic of accountability with regard to the Child Victims Act, mm-hmm. um, before we close, I want to just call everybody's attention to the fact that if you are a survivor of child sexual abuse in New York State, that there is this window of opportunity now for you to reach out and to get in touch with law enforcement, potentially, depending on when your crime took place, and get in touch with attorneys regarding exploring civil lawsuits against your perpetrator, and also get in touch with Gary Greenberg. Through his PAC, he is working to try to establish a fund so that all victims of child sexual abuse in New York State can have access to the legal resources and opportunities to get accountability, even if an attorney doesn't want to represent the case, that they can somehow get some disbursement from this fund. And so if you want to volunteer, if you want to learn more, go to his website and reach out to him. And I know that he would definitely be very excited to hear from you. Um, All of the resources are listed on episode 60's website, but I will list his pack information also on the show notes for this episode. All right. Thank you very much for that, Terry. Thank you very much, Michael, for joining. Thank you. And until next time. Thanks for listening to this episode of Engendered. The show is sponsored by Can Do It Q&A, a peer-based knowledge platform that connects social service providers in advice, community, and learning. You can join Can Do It Q&A for free at qna.kanduit.com. I'd love to get your feedback and hear any questions or suggestions you may have for the show. Please email us at engenderedpodcast at gmail.com with your questions.